Hey there, .NET Rocks listeners. If you couldn't make it to London this year for NSBCon, the very first conference all about N-ServiceBus, we have some good news for you. NSBCon is coming to New York City September 29th and 30th. That's right, two full days of sessions on distributed systems development from top speakers like Udi Dahan, Oren Eni, Ted Neward, and... .NET Rocks is going to be there, too. Not only that, but we have a deal for you. Register before July 31st and get two days of video from Udi Dahan's course free. These videos will teach you about messaging patterns, where and when to use buses and brokers, and the right way to go about service-oriented architecture. These videos usually cost over $1,000, but we oh-so-gently twisted Udi's arm so you, our loyal listeners, can get access to the very best, but only if you register before July 31st. So join Richard and me at NSBCon and take your development skills to a whole new level. Go to NSBConNYC.com and register today. .NET Rocks, Episode 1015, with guest Rocky Latka. Recorded Tuesday, July 15th, 2014. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Rocky's here. It's going to be a great show. How you doing, my friend? I am well. I've just been, you know, banging around, doing the thing with the stuff. I uh, left the house this morning and got down the road and realized I'd left my phone home. What? And then I said, you know what? I'm going to go all day without using my phone. You're talking crazy talk now, Mr. Franklin. <laughs> That's some crazy talk right there. I went to pick up my daughter at ballet class, and uh, she had a text from my wife saying, have Carl call me, right? <laughs> <laughs> of course. So I called her, I'll drop it off for you if you want. Like, no, no, really, it's okay. I'm going to go all day without it. And she goes, Really? that's weird that is weird that's pretty funny do you remember that show we did with amber case a million years ago where she talked about humans are cyborgs because we have these technological extensions to our bodies yeah you know it's like you left your hand at home yeah i know it does feel uh, i feel a little naked in fact you know while i was waiting there for her a thought occurred to me you know oh i wonder about this or that and which i normally would just pick up my phone and Look it up because it's right. what I do all day long, right? Yeah, I have a. I'm curious about something. I look it up, and nope, I just turned on NPR and decided to listen to whatever was on. Oh right. my god, <laughs> crazy talk! It's a little weird. All right, hey, roll the music. I got something good for you. Awesome. All right, what do you got? Well, this is probably old news by now because it's two weeks ago. You know, we recorded this on the 15th. It's now the 30th. However, I found a leaked shot of what appears to be the new start menu in the new updated version of Windows 8.1. Don't even get me started on the updated version of the updated version. That's right. Yes, it's update two of 8.1 because why would you go to 8.2? That's just crazy talk. That's crazy. <laughs> or 8.3. That's just silly. No, no come on. Yeah, so anyway, if you go to tinyurl.com slash win81startback, in other words, the start menu is back, win81startback, I wonder what the the current conventional understanding is today, you know, on the 30th, of this that was leaked on the 14th. 
Is it real? I wonder. Um, somebody claims that it's a Photoshop. It's just a big Photoshop. And other people say, no, you know, that's really what it's going to look like. Well, and I remember back at uh, the build time frame because they flashed a screen up that was a start menu with that looked like a start menu on the left side, but the right side was all the live tiles. Well, and that's what it looks like. It looks like the old Windows 8 start menu on the left. And l- all right, let's just give a visual description of this. So when you hover over or click the start, you know, the Windows button, this thing that takes up probably, I'd say, what, 45% of the left side of the screen in this case, you know, it's going to be smaller and higher resolutions. But so you have half of this box that looks like the old Windows start menu. And then right beside that, you have a vertical version of the start menu with the live tiles, just like Richard said. And it looks kind of cool. I, you know, I could live with that. I could definitely live with that. Sure. Why not? I mean, it's, it's just not that big a deal. Yeah. But okay. You know, if they brought it, if they bring that in, fine. I'm not going to complain. Yep. And you know, all those people who want the tablet experience with the full start screen, it's still there. I guess what they're trying to do is just, take you away from having to go there all the time. Well, and the only reason it wasn't there in the first place is because there was a thought that apps running in the Metro mode would never intersect with apps running the desktop mode. Well, that's already happening, so we might as well have both ways to start apps up, too. It's just kind of silly. Yep. All right, there you go. You got your windows back, I hope. And if not, you know, um, sorry I brought it up. Yeah, we'll see what happens. (laughs) It's always a challenge. (laughs) see what rocky says about that in a few minutes who's talking to us richard campbell hey i grabbed a comment off of rocky's last show which is the 817 the one we did with rocky talking about csla on windows 8 and this comment comes from andrew cooper who says i'm listening to the show at the moment and i find myself having a few things to say with respect to rocky's take on moore's law oh boy you guys were going at it weren't you (laughs) the definition of moore's law in short i agree with richard Moore's Law hasn't stalled, far from it. For a really entertaining take on Moore's Law and the implications for our lives and public policy, Google Ben Hammersley's talk called The Flower of the Field in the Stack, which, by the way, is awesome. Absolutely worth watching. Hammersley's hilarious. And he's English, so he's kind of irresistible. (laughs) Rocky's problem is that his use is an oversimplification of Moore's Law. That is, a doubling of computing power every two years. I agree with Rocky that, looking at the power of processor cores over the last few years, you'd say that we've plateaued, but this is a vast oversimplification. Moore's actual observation and extrapolated prediction was that the number of components in a given space on a chip for a given price would double every year or two. And it was between 24 and 18 months, really. Uh, that price component is important. It leads to the corollary that for a given computing power, the cost will have every year or two. This is still holding true. This certainly is what's making tablets possible uh, today and is showing no signs of slowing. We will, of course, hit physical limits sooner or later, but we'll probably be fine for at least another decade, which, incidentally, was the limit of Moore's Law's original prediction. And I just went and double-checked on that part of it. It was Bob Colwell, who's one of the big uh, Intel guys, designer of such chips as the Pentium Pro and the 2 and the 3 and the Pentium 4, uh, who talked through the sort of evolution of where Moore's Law was going to go. You know, today we are pretty much every chip, if you're buying a modern computer, is at 22 nanometers. Right. Which I think people forget how small 22 nanometers is. A red blood cell, for example, 8,000 nanometers. Hmm. Right? Like you can fit 350 
transistors into the space of a red blood cell. Hmm. Just, you know, just be aware how small we are, are all, what we're using today right now. Yeah. And Moore's Law looks to continue till roughly 2020 when we get to about the five nanometer point. Mm-hmm. But that being said, a team at the University of Manchester five years ago managed to make a transistor out of graphene that worked and was one nanometer across. I'm sure Rocky's chomping at the bit wanting to jump in here, but let's uh, pick up that discussion after the when we start here. There you bet. So, Andrew, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our mobile apps because we've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8 and Windows 8 and iOS and Android. And that brings us to Rocky. Rockford Lotka is the CTO at Magenic, one of the nation's premier Microsoft Gold certified partners dedicated to solving today's most challenging business problems. He's the creator of the widely used CSLA.net open source development framework and is a Microsoft regional director and MVP. Rocky speaks at many conferences and user groups around the world. Welcome back, Rocky. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, we got to punch your frequent guest card here. What are you, 11, 12? Probably in that ballpark. Yeah, <laughs> I was with you guys from the very start, so it's yeah. been... Uh, Fun to be along for so long. It's wonderful. Well, here you are in the second block of thousands, so thank you. So we apologize for taking advantage of the fact that we have a show and you don't, you know, with that uh, whole Moore's Law thing. But you guys really did get into that, uh, the you know, splitting hairs over whatever it was at uh, on the road trip, and I thought that was a, a great conversation. Do you have anything to add to that? Well, I can't argue with the uh, basic facts about Moore's Law itself. But I, my point, and, and I guess maybe it's because I tend to be, to use hyperbole and, and, uh, you know, all sorts of clever bits of language as a regular habit. But my point is less about the, uh, number of transistors or even the price and more about the fact that developers cannot count on their software running on faster and faster processors. And we used to count on that. I mean, Microsoft used to literally build their next OS for the hardware that would come out when it was done. They counted on Moore's Law to compensate for the fact that it was heavier and more complicated software. And they've clearly stopped that in the last few generations. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, for example, Magenic, we're just rolling out our laptop refresh, which we do every three years. And the new laptops are only superior to the old ones uh, in that they now have an SSD that's you know maybe got a little more space, and I think they have a little more RAM, but and they weigh a little bit less. You know, so there are some aspects, but they're not faster. No, they're, they're still the same speed that the ones were from three years ago, and those are actually not a whole lot faster than the ones from three years prior to that. One would even say in a megahertz range could be slower because we clearly backed off from speed in the early 2000s when we were well in the high threes, almost pushing four. We went back down to two when Intel reverted back to the the uh, Pentium three designs. Well, and it, and now heat and battery life and weight have become more important than raw speed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, did the number of cores go up in your lap, your latest laptop refresh? Are you all running four now? Uh, we were i7s with four, and I believe it's the same now. Right. Yep. 
but it'll be Ivy Bridge rather than Nephilim. Another so, observation, guys, is that now that processors have sort of maintained their speed, the operating system has gone the other way. In other words, trying to use less memory, trying to be more efficient. And Windows 7 was the first real example of that. Yeah, totally. And and 8 is slightly better than 7. And you know, it's the first time in all the years that I've been in computing where operating systems actually got more efficient, mm-hmm. at least the mainstream ones. I, I guess be careful because somebody in the Linux world will probably yell at me, but probably, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah the Cunix guys would say, we've always been efficient. I don't know what's wrong with you. People. Well, yeah, that's, that's yeah. true. I, I worked on uh, Unix a lot when I was in, in college. And of course I, my primary memory of that is that one user would write some demon that would chew up the whole system and kill all the rest of us so right yeah they, they might have been efficient but they weren't very safe <laughs> they were f- efficient at bringing the machine down <laughs> so uh first of all what do you think of these leaked photos and everything and do you think it matters and do you think that's old news or what well i wrote a blog post back when that microsoft first flashed that screen um basically to, to me the start menu has never been an important thing um, I appreciate that some people find a lot of passion around whether they have a start screen versus a start menu. Uh, well, it obviously matters to a lot of mere mortals. And and so that's cool, right? If, yeah. if that's what it takes to make people happy, then, you know, that, that's icing on the cake, bells and whistles, whatever you want to call it. I think that um, the bigger deal is the, well, to my mind, two things. One if you're using a computer that has big screens, keyboards, mice, you know, what we think of as a computer, then being able to mix and match uh, modern applications with legacy applications in a pretty transparent way is important. Mm-hmm. And Windows 8.1 does not do that particularly well. You know, you can you can finagle it, but it's a pain in the butt. And so. And, and so the start menu, okay, that's maybe part of it, but I think the bigger question is, can I run, cause, cause I really like a lot of modern apps. I right. use right. them constantly. Can I use them in a window or do I have to keep running modern mix? Which is great, by the way. Which is great. It's a wonderful tool. Yeah. Um, but you know, why, why can't I run the weather app? <laughs> it's certainly not a technological issue for Microsoft. Obviously, if some third party can figure out how to make it work, they can do it too. It's obviously yep. a decision that they made to keep them separate. And so personally, I hope that, that they do allow mixing and matching for users that want that. Yeah. My other primary concern though, is that I want some sort of switch that says thou shalt not ever see windows because the desktop you mean, is that what you mean? Oh, the desktop. But actually what I mean is windows like overlapping windows. Mm -hmm. Oh, my, my dad and, and actually Magenix lawyer and, and several other, (laughs) some people have windows issues. (laughs) Yeah. You know, these are people that are highly accomplished in their particular part of life, but they're not tech people and they literally get lost in overlapping windows. And so the idea of uh, at most having the side by side split windows like we do in 8.1, you know, that's an awesome, awesome thing for people that, 
literally get lost in windows. And I, right. I suspect that's a large percentage of the global population. Actually. And that just brings on the question, you know, why don't we have two different OSs, one for tablets and one for the desktop? I mean, that they can both sh sort of share in, in, uh, in features like this side-by-side -side thing is a great feature for the desktop. But if you put all that in the same, you know, in the same uh, OS, you have, what do you, what do you have? Two flavors of the same thing on the same machine. You know, and I'm good with that as long as WinRT runs everywhere. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me is really the key here. I can't really say that I care if there's a desktop OS versus a tablet OS as long as, or a phone OS, mm. um, as long as all of my modern apps run on all of those platforms. Right. And, you know, so Microsoft introduced the, the universal app uh, solution template at uh, you know in in visual studio that allows you now to build an app that shares most if not all of your code between the phone uh windows 8.1 you know winrt phone and uh windows 8.1 winrt on the tablet or desktop mm. and now in the you know they've merged the stores so if i create one of these universal apps put it into the store and you buy it on your phone, you also have now access to it on your tablet or your computer. And you said desktop too as well. Oh, sure. I mean, I run Windows 8 on my desktop. No, no, no. I mean, a universal app can run on your desktop. No, it runs in WinRT. So it runs, if you use modern mix, then yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that point because you did say desktop. Yeah. Well, it's confusing, right? Because most people think of a tower as a desktop computer. Right. Technically, we have desktop mode and we have, yeah. what do we call that other thing now? <laughs> yeah, whatever. I, I just call it WinRT because Win RT mode. Windows Store app, yeah, you know. Modern that's, app. that's great, but eventually either we're going to start writing not store apps like, you know, business apps and productivity apps, or it's never going to be relevant. Isn't it a little insulting to the people who are doing great, really high tech, modern looking work in WPF to, to not to call their apps sort of like dinosaurs when you have this modern app moniker for every for things that run in WinRT? Yeah, yeah, no, I don't know. It's a. I actually use the term modern app in a broader sense than just Microsoft. Exactly. This is what I'm talking about. And so I suppose that it's possible to write what you would think of as a modern app in WPF. Um, but it's not so easy because the underlying uh, operating system and APIs are not really optimized for uh, understanding GPS and you know, RFID scanners sure. and a lot of the things that you find native in iOS, Android, or WinRT. Yeah. Just, you know, they, they, it's not that they don't exist in .NET, but they're not first class citizens. Sure. You know? Sure. And, and I guess that's the, to me, when, when I think about a modern app, I almost think, well, I do, in fact, I, I describe it as post mobile. Right. You know, because right now we've got, kind of these legacy apps and we've got mobile apps and most, if not all mobile apps, or at least what people think of as mobile are not business apps, right? They're, they might be productivity. They might be like, you know, word on, uh, uh, the iPad, right? but they're not 
you know, not your order entry or, you know what I mean? That sort of thing. I got to remind everybody that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by dnsimple.com, simplifying the process of registering domains and providing headache-free DNS services, starting at just $8 a month, online at dnsimple.com. And we love them. And we love them. So I love this idea of post-mobile, Rocky, because what it really is, is we're just bringing mobile back into the fold. This is what we did with the tablet show. Mobile development turns out to be development. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Microsoft agrees with us too, apparently. Well, I think that's true. I, I, you know, and, and what's interesting is, of course, the new Microsoft is now embracing Android and iOS along with Windows. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you throw something like Xamarin into the mix, and all of a sudden, it's uh, I find it to be quite compelling because now we can start saying, okay, how do I build a business, you know, a line of business app that runs literally everywhere. It runs on my iPhone, my iPad, my Android devices, my Windows phone, my Windows tablet, my Windows, you know, laptop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we, this is within reach, right? It's it's not seamless yet today, but but we're so close that it, it, you know. It's- <laughs> What's interesting to me is when we first started the tablet show, we interviewed Lino Tadros in Bulgaria. And we asked him, are you doing, you're doing a lot of mobile development, are you using the Xamarin tools or, or any hybrid solutions? And he said, no, we're going all native because, you know, we, it's all new and we don't really trust it. And, you know, we're, 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 we're just using the tried and true native iOS, Xcode. We're using Java for Android and it's working out great. Saw him a year later. So what are you using now? He's like, we're Xamarin all the way. <laughs> <laughs> And that wasn't even with Xamarin Forms. I mean, now you can do everything in C Sharp and in XAML. It, it's just too darn expensive to write well, and maintain. I mean, this is the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand about uh, line of business apps, but they have a five to 10 year payback. Yeah. Right. So when you build this app, it has to run and be maintainable for probably a decade. And so if you write it three times, you know, you, you essentially tripled your maintenance cost over the next, uh, decade. And if you stop and think about that, that's generally, uh, intractable or untenable. It's cheaper to supply everybody with a common device. Yeah. Well, it would be way cheaper. And, and of course we see some of those cases where companies say, oh, we're going to do an iPad only or, uh, like Delta is, uh, give all their pilots a, a surface and all their uh, flight attendants a Windows phone. Yeah. And it, of course, that's way, way, way cheaper than trying to support more than one platform. Yeah. Funny how that's it. I remember back in the old days, like in the 80s, where we were building an app and, and we got to a point where it's like, it's cheaper to actually ship this app with an extra 128 megs of RAM than to actually try and make this smaller. Yeah. It's... I actually just wrote a blog post too about tooling because if you think back to the late eighties or early nineties, mm-hmm. there were a lot of, uh, non platform vendor developer tools like, uh, SQL windows and Delphi and turbo Pascal and you know, a whole bunch of these that, uh, were not created by the Google or the Apple or the Microsoft. They were created right. by a third party. And in some cases, they ran across multiple platforms. Yeah. Mm. 
and that they all died, right? Well, died, but they all faded into the background, shall we say? Yeah, at some point over the last uh, fifteen or twenty years, because Windows was the only game in town, right? And why why wouldn't you use Visual Studio? Indeed. Well, and and because everything's on the common platform again. So now we're we're headed back into this heterogeneous client world. And, it, and there's got to be a real battle here over can you build it one way? Like, I, I can't see us ever getting away from exception cases all over the place. Like, our projects are now going to look like, yeah, here's the 80% that's common. And then the 20% is repeated for each uh, platform. Yeah. And, and that's where I think if, you, you know, I've done quite a lot of work over the last probably two, three months with uh, Xamarin Forms and you know, both the, the Xamarin and the Microsoft universal, um, project concepts. Right. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's interesting is that underneath Microsoft's universal project is a, uh, new concept called a shared project. Right. Which if you, uh, go out and there's, there's a, uh, V6 that you can add to visual studio that allows you, and it's from Microsoft too, that allows you to add a reference to any shared project in any other project. The way that I like to say it is that you have uh, projects for your native projects for um, iOS, Android, Windows Phone, and then those call into uh, a shared project to get the uh, you know to get the code that is shared among them. But it's not the shared project in and of itself doesn't isn't a reference. No, it's actually it's compiled in. Well, what's funny to me is that this is a formalization of file linking, which is right. something at least with CSLA that I've been recommending people do since Silverlight came out in, you know, 2007 or whatever it was. Um because it's a particularly awesome way to share your code without having to maintain it more than once. Yeah. I have a theory, and tell me if you think I'm all wet, but I, I have a theory that if we're luring developers to C-sharp for developing on uh, multiple devices, and you know, and everybody starts buying into it, you know, like the iOS developers and the, the, the Java developers, the ones that are doing it all native now start buying into it, and this becomes like the super productive way to build mobile apps, um... Windows sort of benefits from that, and Windows devices, in fact, you know, Surface and WinRT devices sort of benefit from that because it's so freaking easy to to build you, that same code and build a Windows Store app or win, a modern app, whatever you want to call it. So do you think that not only are, is, are we seeing a resurgence of C-sharp, but possibly uh, 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 it being good for Windows 8? Well, I think so. I think what's interesting is that if you level the playing field in terms of I, I can write an app that runs everywhere with reasonable amounts of effort, you know, and, and reasonable maintenance costs, then whoever is the trailing platform has the opportunity to benefit. Mm. And and what's interesting in, in today's world is that depending on how you look at the numbers, you know, Microsoft is trailing behind iOS and Android. Um, but what's also funny is that they still have 92% of all the corporate desktops. Right. right. Yeah. So then in that regard, they're not trailing at all. <laughs> yeah. 
and and so when we start talking about modern apps where we were you know the intersection of the, you know these mobile and and nice user experiences with line of business enterprise type apps um it's the point too at which the leadership of apple and android directly meets the leadership of windows mm. or the dominance if you want to look at it that way and mm. so having i think that's where you know things like c sharp and and uh, some sort of xaml dialect that helps you cover your the 92 percent of your desktops and all of the mobile devices mm. so that when i do build some sort of um you know business app that helps me manage my uh you know customer base i can still have these super crowded highly productive screens that my call center deals with and i can have some um you know maybe technically less efficient but highly portable uh version of that same functionality that runs on my phone or a tablet anyway right have you seen the surface 3 i have seen the surface 3 what do you think i am waiting for the i7 version <laughs> mm-hmm. more horsepower please more power well the thing is that i use my surface pro 2 as my primary um machine other than my desktop computer so you know, i've got my you know kind of big tower computer that's got all sorts of power and memory and blah 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 and totally not portable mm. um but extremely powerful and it runs all my games as well as my dev tools right. but when i'm going anywhere i just grab my surface and that includes even going into the magenic office uh where i've got a docking port with two monitors and you know, plus the surface so i end up with three monitors and it's all wonderful but it's an i5 so it's not quite as fast as i would like and the surface pro 2's screen if i can't plug it into an external monitor is just a little small for doing any sort of development work. Right. And so that's where I'm looking at the Surface Pro 3 thinking, okay, it doesn't weigh anymore. It's it weighs less. Big, weigh, yeah, right. Weighs less. So it's a little bit bigger and bulkier and in, in it's but but then again, I want the bigger screen, so that's a trade-off. And I'll still be able to plug it in and get three full monitors when I'm at my desk at work, right? So to me, it seems like the probably the perfect trade-off, but I, I, I'll see when I actually get to you know fly around and use one on an airplane and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. Time to come up from our deep dive into the muck of mobile development, swim up toward the light, and surface. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> <laughs> you pulled that one out. I'm like, where's he going with that? Killing me. Nice. Yeah. Surface. No, it's time to give a DevCraft complete collection away to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is today, supercharge your .NET productivity with Telerik DevCraft. This bundle includes over 420 UI controls for all .NET technologies, including ASP.NET, AJAX, MVC, and WPF. Plus, you also receive Kendo UI, the HTML5 and JavaScript framework, productivity, reporting, and debugging tools. Telerik DevCraft comes with three upgrades per year and Telerik's industry-leading support. Download your free 30-day trial today at telerik.com slash 
DNR-DevCraft. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Aline Zaranu from Munich. Congratulations, Aline. He's originally from Romania, but he's currently working and living in Munich. Congratulations. And he just won the Telerik DevCraft collection. That's a whole bunch of goodness in one box, as I just said. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away great stuff, and every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member. Picked at random, but you have to be a member of the fan club to win. Mm-hmm. So check it out. And uh, we also like to ask our guests, Rocky, you know, we've asked you this a bunch of times, wondered if anything's changed. If you had $5,000 to spend today on technology, what would you buy, sir? Well, I do think I would buy, if I didn't already have it, I would go out and, and buy Xamarin. Right. Um, because I, I'm finding that to be quite compelling. Um, That's a couple of grand right there. Sure is, yeah. <laughs> It's true, and there, there is some debate in certain circles about whether that's cost-effective or not. Certainly got to be shipping software. I personally tend to think that if you're if you're planning to build software and it, if you're a .NET shop, so your people already know C Sharp and .NET, and you're planning to build software that is going to encompass uh, Android and iOS... I mean, that's a drop in the bucket compared to yeah, the cost sure. of your developers. Especially when you're talking in your context, line of business apps over 10 years, come on. Yeah, it, it's pretty incidental. So I, I don't, you know, besides which, it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, 20 years ago when we were living in a pluralistic platform world, people spent money like crazy on tools like SQL Windows or, or Forte mm. or whatever. Yeah. I mean, huge amounts of money. And so now we're, we're back in that pluralistic platform world and third party dev tools are on the rise, but they're not as expensive now as they were back then. So we're just, we're just not used to paying for it. <laughs> yeah. You've also got this free culture in the open source web world too, where, you know, libraries are given away and, and, uh, and everything's going to run into the browser. So there is sort of an interesting side-by-side -side here of these two approaches. I, I don't think they're directly comparable in a lot of respects. The browser, without a doubt, is getting better. But it's not in the same league as what we can do across all the devices now. No, al although I do think you're right that, that there are some comparisons to be drawn. And I, and I think it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. One of the biggest areas that... I find concerning in the web space is, is actually not whether or not you can do powerful things because obviously you can, all you have to do is look at the Azure portal or uh, Gmail or, you know, there, there's a variety of examples of incredibly well done, powerful client apps written in JavaScript. Sure. Mm. But what's interesting, if you start trying to build a, a business app, you know, a single page app type, uh, line of business app is because of the rate of change of all of those free open source frameworks and you need what maybe six to 12 of them you can't get a stable platform for more than a few weeks yeah mm. we're in such a rapid state of evolution right now right yeah and and so the cost um, associated with that if i build 
some sort of you know real business app that has maybe a couple hundred screens to it, and then every couple three weeks or every you know two three times a year maybe I have to go through every screen and tweak it because some aspect of you know blah blah dot js framework changed right um that's pretty darn expensive yeah or you step off and you're stuck with a set of libraries that are ultimately unsupportable well and really that's how we got into this whole ie6 windows xp debacle right yes is people did in fact do that um 12 years ago they wrote all this stuff targeting ie6 and then they couldn't get off from it and then here they are today, still trapped on XP, paying Microsoft to get you know extended support. So, Rocky, we've been talking for a little over half an hour now about modern apps and business apps in the future. And this is really the first time you've brought up HTML, which I thought was your platform of choice, the the winner in the in the business world. Do you still think that? I'm torn. Um, I, I still think that HTML has a, a good shot and there's obviously, um, a lot of interest in that space and it has the potential if it can stabilize. It, uh, in fact, I, and that to me is what I'm just talking about here is I think the biggest single concern that I have is the rapid chaotic churn that is antithetical to a typical enterprise in terms of its risk model. Well, and you see what happened. I mean, when you wrote that original blog post, we didn't have the kind of cross-platform solutions that we have now. The ones that we wanted that Microsoft promised was Silverlight, right? And uh, and never really happened. And, uh, yeah. and, and so, you know, I, I guess HTML JavaScript was looking pretty good back then. Well, yeah, and what was that a year ago? You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. But but you, you know, a lot can change, and and I think in particular for me, what's changed is the the relationship between Microsoft and Xamarin um, has solidified in ways that uh, boosted my confidence around Xamarin quite a lot. Yeah, I always liked the technology, but. If, if I'm going to recommend something to a customer, I've got to have some level of confidence that the technology is going to you know, be around and, and not get you know, shut down because they're too small or because they run mm. afoul of their primary you know, vendor, in this case, Microsoft with C Sharp and Visual Studio. Right. And of course, they're in an interesting spot because they also have to make sure they don't uh, irritate Google or uh, even more importantly, Apple. Right. So you like the .NET Foundation? I do. I think that was a really smart move. Very, very savvy. Um, Tell us about that. Yeah, the .NET Foundation is extremely compelling, I think. The idea of creating an open source uh, foundation that kind of uh, collects a lot of the .NET um, related projects and and, uh, makes them available and, main, and maintains them over time. And then having Microsoft add to this foundation things like the VB and C-sharp compilers, hmm. um, you know, among a lot of other things. ASP.net. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Some, some small, trivial technology. Little things. Little, little things. <laughs> little yeah. things. Uh, but in this context, um, I, I actually, I, and, and I could be wrong, but re- the way I read it is that 
Microsoft wanted or wants to help Xamarin and, and maybe others be highly successful because it's in their interest. And to date um, with Xamarin and Mono, the amount of energy spent creating and maintaining a clone of Microsoft's compiler mm. or compilers has to be ridiculously expensive. Sure. So uh, if I can just cherry pick a few of the projects that are in the .NET Foundation, and these are open source by Microsoft Open Technologies and Xamarin's contributed. So we have ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET VNext, Web API, Couchbase, Link to Hive, MimeKit, MVVM Lite Toolkit, uh, Rosalind, the .NET Micro Framework, Owen Authentication Middleware, Windows Azure.NET SDK, Salesforce Toolkits for .NET, Xamarin.Auth, ASP.NET SignalR, ASP.NET Web Pages, Composition, that's MEF2, Entity Framework, MailKit, uh, MEF, .NET API for Hadoop Web Client, .NET MapReduce API for Hadoop, OpenXML SDK, Web Protection Library, Windows Phone Toolkit, System Drawing, and Xamarin.Mobile. Holy crap. Yeah, it's a... That's just about <laughs> everything. It, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And, and I really do think that the uh, by doing this, it helps um, Microsoft create better products, as we've seen with over some time now with ASP.NET MVC. Mm. Um, and... You know, well, better, you know, better is such a nebulous word, but I think you can pretty well argue that MVC is better because of the community feedback and, and the uh, oh, yeah. various contributions that people have made, either th if not through code, through um, ideas and, and being able to look through how it works. Yeah. But in this context, too, I think the, you know, now we're in a position potentially where where Xamarin doesn't need to build and maintain their own compiler. They can just use the compiler. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also the source for Xamarin is sitting in a place where anybody can get to it. It's being supported. Like if I'm a big corporation, I'm no longer looking at Xamarin, the little startup. I'm yep. looking at the code base lives in the .NET Foundation where Microsoft hangs out too. Yeah. That's a lot more confidence building than, than dealing with the startup. I agree. And, and I think that's, that's really where my attitude has changed a lot over the last year is the, between the open source nature of, of some of these shared tools and, and technologies between Microsoft and at least Xamarin and the, you know, the rest of the world. But in this case, I think the big thing is that that boosts, like you said, Xamarin's credibility. And also, um, we've had some pretty strong endorsements from microsoft of xamarin mm -hmm. um, that you know prior to that point microsoft had been kind of hands off and you know uh, had not clearly stated their views and i think at this point it's pretty clear that that there's a close and friendly partnership there mm-hmm yeah, it's it's good. It's just obviously further to go and and more and more to be done. But nah, I've got no complaints about that. I feel like they've struck the balance between because there was a huge contingent of folks who were like just buy them, right? And they've and they managed to resist that and still come with a great solution and not impair 
what it's going to take to go forward, not anger Google and Apple, which I think is a big piece of this. I mean, it's ultimately what these tools are about and still be able to keep moving forward and stay as agile as that little company's been. They've built a tremendous amount of code in a small amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was generally supportive of the idea of Microsoft buying Xamarin. Um, but after they didn't announce it at Build, I really put a lot of thought and had some good conversations with a number of people. And the risk of buying them um, turns out probably to have been very, very high, especially yeah. in terms of uh, alienating Apple and and the Android world. And of course, without that, then what's the point? <laughs> and they so, have the benefit because Xamarin's motivation is clearly to play nice in that space yep exactly so i think i think they made the right decision but to come back to your question carl about html i i still that's not out of the running of course not i just i just thought you know yeah no if if um things have changed a little bit if if the html world can uh settle in on and of course this is almost um you know, the opposite of what anybody in that world would want, I think. But from the enterprise perspective, if the HTML world could center in on one framework to do uh, UI stuff and one framework to do uh, the AJAX communication with servers, and, you know, and not to say that only one would exist, but one would become dominant. Right. Right. Or, or maybe two. I mean, you could think of the .NET Java dichotomy and say, okay, there could there could be two JavaScript like framework families, and but I don't think there can be more than two. And then I, as a as a decision maker at some big company, can say, okay, I'm going to buy into um, X.js, and I have some level of confidence that it's going to change only once every year or two, and that it's going to be maintained over the next decade. And you know, it's a pretty tall order for it the. Is. To, to think about today's chaos turning into that kind of stability. There's just so much backward compatibility that can't change that makes it so hard. I, I just trying to do simple data passing and accessing data, like simple things that we take for such granted in C Sharp, you know, with our with our great tools and stuff. Just passing objects around and trying to read and write them sometimes turns into I was up till four in the morning last night working on javascript and i finally was just like ah, i'm done <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know this is so stupid I, you know it makes you feel like in such an idiot i i do think the the javascript explosion is starting to subside angular's had traction for a while now and we're, we're starting to see some more stability in that space the upside to the browser model on the phones is that because the phone's are changing so stably, you know, when the rate of OS change and so forth is is pretty good. There's only three browsers. Really, there's two. There's under the hood, it's WebKit and Trident on the phone. So in some respects, it's easier to make a well-working mobile app on phones than it is even on the desktop. In some respects. In some respects, it's really ridiculously hard. And there still is Blink, which is a fork of WebKit, which is what Chrome's using now. So I guess we're stuck. We're back. There's three phones and there's three browsers. Yeah, and that's really where those JavaScript libraries become so critical because right. I, as a 
business developer, I don't want to have to deal with any of that. <laughs> yeah, I don't even want to know. I, I just want to use you know Angular and, and jQuery and a handful of other tools and let them mitigate the differences for me. Yeah. Well, and, and the, what's interesting here is this parallel. So now we're using Xamarin to write across these devices on native apps, and we're talking about the percentage of unique code per platform. Mm. And now when you go and look at it on the browser side of the world, it's pretty much the same issue. Most of this code's just going to run. But there's going to be these pieces in it, some percentage, that are going to have to be tweaked for each of those browsers. Yeah, it's just in a different layer. Yeah, it's in the UI layer in the browser. Well, and how well organized is it, too? I mean, what I appreciate with Microsoft's doing over here with the universal app model is clearly creating a container for the unique platform stuff. I just don't see that kind of clarity on the browser side. It's because most of the stuff that changes in the native side is in the middle tier. Most of the stuff that changes, well, now it is, you know, with Xamarin. Most of the stuff that's changing in uh, the HTML side is on the UI side. I'm not sure I agree with that, though. I think that especially when we start looking at the universal project types and so forth, if you write your, well, and of course I'm, biased because I'm using CSLA, which does a lot of the mitigation for you. But if you use CSLA, for example, to create all of your business logic and all that sort of thing, that is completely unchanged across all the platforms. Mm -hmm. So the only unique code um, is UI specific. Mm -hmm. So it's actually in that regard, I think very similar to what you end up doing with uh, HTML. If you're writing a, a Xamarin Forms app, however, you have one UI and you have changes uh, that are in the middle tier based on the, the platform, you know, based on the stuff that the platform does. The, the GPS sensor, uh, you call that in a different way on iOS than you call it in an Android app. You know, that's the stuff that, that has to be specific. Oh, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah, that's the problem with the term middle. <laughs> yeah, M middle on the client versus middle in your overall app. Yeah, middle on the client, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's right. not UI code. That's system code on the on the platform. Yeah, right. what's middle now? Right. And, and admittedly, Xamarin Forms is super new. Right. This has just landed, and and it's all up until now. It's always been the UI is different on each device. Yep. In some respects. I just hope they keep updating it and give us more and more stuff. It's pretty sparse right now, you know. It, it's definitely, I, I would call it at best a, a beta or a preview, really. Yeah, it really is sparse. But, I mean, it does get the job done, but there's so many so many things they can, uh, they have a lot of room to grow, let's put it that way. And I'm sure they will. Well, it, it seems like they've built a really nice foundation. Yeah on which they can expand. So, yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. I hope they do expand, and I hope they expand, you know, relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. And to Carl's point, the middleware pieces on the phone could use a layer of abstraction. I mean, GPS shouldn't be that different between devices. If they got, I mean, are we really trying to strive for one code base to roll them all? Is that really even feasible? It certainly seems that way to me, Richard. I don't know about you, Rocky. I do. I, I think, in fact, one of the advantages of having either JavaScript libraries or C-sharp libraries in Xamarin is that even if the platform vendors, or, or in this case, maybe Xamarin or, you know, but you or I could go create a GPS 
library that abstracts it. Hmm. Right. And, and it's, it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world, but you know, you, it opens the door for some really nice open source abstractions. And some of these actually exist in the JavaScript world already. And they exist in the Xamarin world. There are some, um, because I've been doing quite a bit of work with Xamarin forms. And so in the forums, there are people that post tools that, you know, code snippets that do just that. Because we're really just talking C sharp and the, the C sharp is different on each of these platforms. So, um, you know, the way in which we, we get data can be abstract. I've already found myself doing it. You know, I found myself making an abstraction over GPS data. And it wasn't all that difficult, really. It's just there's a subtle difference between the data structures for location that you get from each platform. But fundamentally, it's the same stuff. There might be some fields that are missing on this platform that are in that platform. But fundamentally, it's it's all there. No, and exactly right. And you st- that's where we come back to this um, ability to create uh, shared projects and and link them into all these UI specifics, and then use compiler directives. That, you know, to for those few areas where the code is different, you just use compiler directives, create this thing. Um, and and I do think there's this. Uh, technology becomes more widely used that we'll start to see um, more and more uh, toolkits. Um, A colleague of mine uh, works out of our Boston office is deeply involved in the Xamarin toolkit, which is an open source project, primarily UI focused to create um, various components for uh, Xamarin forms, things that are missing. Mm. And, you know, in the, you know, basically, this is an echo, if you will, of the WPF toolkit or the Silverlight toolkit. You know, I mean, the, you know, this concept of um, having the community fill in the gaps is not at all new, but it kind of comes with the territory of a tool becoming uh, popular enough that there's enough people out there actually, you know, interested in, in uh, filling in those gaps. One other thing I want to mention before we stop is that uh, I'm going to be doing a pre-con uh, with Xamarin Forms at Dev Intersection this November. So that's going to be uh, uh, an all-day thing where we install, you know, and set up on the first day, first half of the day, and then we uh, do some do some code the second half of the day. You know, bring your Mac Mini kind of thing. <laughs> Can't wait for that. That's cool, man. Yeah. Can I do a, a dueling workshop then? Ah, heavy. That sounds awesome. Let's talk. Talk to Richard, actually, because he's the guy. No, it, in, uh, also in November in Orlando at uh, Visual Studio Live, I'll be doing a workshop uh, with uh, Marcel DeVries um, covering how to, how to do C Sharp across all these different platforms. And so, of course, we'll also be covering Xamarin Forms and Microsoft Universal apps and so forth. Oh, that's awesome. We need to get the, the word out there. More people need to uh, hear this. Good stuff. Rocky, is there anything else that we should talk about before we uh, wrap it up? Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground, so it's all good. It's always great to get your perspective on what's going on. Um, you're truly a wise man. We all appreciate it. Well, thank you. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. 
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time bomb.